started to come to terms with the fact that actually I'm deaf and when I'm in the deaf world there isn't a good fit but I also managed to in, in the hearing world because that's where the you know in New Zealand the reality is we are a hearing society and so I can move in there and I know how to function in there how to operate in there but I'll never be hearing and I know that too and I think just from there everything I've done all the pathways I've taken all at the ultimately at the end of the day is about equality and deaf students should be working through education and achieving the same equity level as everybody else. Welcome to Generations of Change. I'm Anya Kelly Costello, a young blind journalist and advocate known for my delight in asking endless questions. I mainly grew up in the 2000s and I vividly remember the camaraderie of being at camps with other blind kids and teens. In the real world at school, I was surrounded by sighted people. I was a good student, but I remember the shame I felt when a teacher asked me why I was sitting alone at lunch, and the frustration of having to fight to be in the jazz band just because I couldn't see. While at uni, I stumbled into a role advocating for accessibility law, Suddenly, it was my job to connect with and empower other disabled people to be part of a call for change, and I had to find the courage to build relationships with a whole lot of virtual strangers. That job would end up bringing me into community and solidarity with students, writers, academics, business people, and advocates of all ages. Disability was our shared experience, and together we would champion change. Our efforts built on decades of leadership from disabled people. But how was it growing up disabled 40 or 50 years ago or acquiring disability as an adult? How has Aotearoa changed? How has it not? What unplanned moments would shape the lives of the visionary disabled people who dedicated themselves to making inclusion the norm? Join me for one of seven conversations where both of us get to find out. Hi Rachel, it's great to be able to talk to you today. Could you introduce yourself for me? Uh, yeah, sure. I'm Rachel and um, I'm living here in Mannington at the moment. Although in the past I've lived in Auckland and Dunedin and Napier, so I consider myself a child of Aotearoa, definitely. I um, was born deaf into a hearing family, although my brother also had the hearing loss too. If I had been born, say, two or three years earlier, my entire school education would have been in Christchurch. So I was born in Napier, so I grew up there. So all children who were deaf from Napier, Gibson and South went to the Summer School for Deaf in Christchurch. But I was born at the tail end of the rebellion epidemic, which meant that there was a big explosion of deaf children throughout the country at the time. And because of that, they set up deaf units in different places. So a deaf unit was set up in Napier, um, and I was part of the second year intake into that deaf unit, which meant that I was part of a larger group of deaf children at the time. But when it um, came to intermediate, and at that time the family moved down to Wellington, and I went to the local mountain school there, which was quite a shock because I came from an environment of knowing that there were other deaf children like me out there. 
going into a fully managed situation where I was the only deaf person there. Yeah. When you were at primary school in the deaf unit, um, how did you communicate with the other deaf students at that time? At that time, you were only allowed to use spoken language. So in the classroom, everything was in spoken English, oral. And if we were signing, we got into big trouble. Luckily in my unit, we didn't get distracted with some of these awful stories that we've heard from other schools. But there was definitely an expectation that if you spoke, you were doing really well. And for some reason, communication was one of my skills. Therefore, I did learn to speak well. And so I was seen as a good girl, which is totally unfair just because sign language wasn't available. But if sign language is more available to everyone else, I think I would have been more bilingual growing up. So for us, we know that if we went behind the classroom at lunchtime and playtime, we could sign more. But as soon as we knew a teacher was coming, we would tell each other to stop and talk. But of course the expectation was that if you could talk, you were doing well. So I was told that the more normal or hearing I could be, the better it was. I mean, they, these people didn't realise what we know now, that the richness to be part of both communities and a great richness to be part of a deaf community. Totally. So when you transitioned to intermediate and suddenly you weren't around deaf students anymore, um, how did you find that transition? It was a shock. It was a huge shock. Um, I know that the school put me into a class which had a good teacher, but of course I was one child out of 30. And there was no group of deaf children on the other side of the school to court to. And also the gap that I had in my learning at the time was huge. So, And I would get a visit from a teacher of the deaf for three hours a week. That's all. So there was no teacher aid or anything like that. I had what was a radio aid system where the teacher had a microphone and I had a receiver. And um, basically it was think or swim. And I think I probably dog paddled along. <laughs> I think um, I changed to a new high school after halfway through my second year of high school. And the second school that I went to had very high expectations of everybody. And I think that had a big impact on me. And also, I had a teacher of the deaf that came who was not a qualified teacher of the deaf. And she could see that my reading was a bit low and everything. So she gave me great big novels to read and said, read it. And everyone was like, she can't read that. Because deaf people, the expectation is that their reading level will always be low. Yeah. My parents were told my reading level will never get past the age of seven. And do you think that the fact that the school had high expectations of everyone and that they included you in that would eventually have like helped your confidence and sort of self-esteem, knowing that in fact you could read much, much better if you were challenged? I think the fact that they expected everyone to move up, they had one different person there before me who did well and so I was the second one and I think yes having that expectation but also sort of my own inner drive I didn't want to fall behind my classmates I wanted to keep up as well but also the teachers were really willing to make the necessary accommodation my geography teacher in particular was really cool 
And every time she had my car, she wore a long brown cardigan that had pockets in it so that she could wear my microphone and transmit it easily. So I was just always thinking ahead about making sure that I was going to fit in and be able to do the work. Yes. The bar, at the same time, there were some expectations again. For example, they, they wanted me to take the easier option. I think in school certificate, you could take other, I can't remember what it was called now, but it was some other certificate course. So they thought I could do some other thing that would be less stressful. And I was like, no, I'm doing all school certificate subjects, no matter what. And I got them all. Yeah, and I know you've said in the past that you feel quite lucky compared to a lot of other deaf students who may not have even gotten that much support, right? Yeah. I think that growing up in part of a deaf unit and then moving into the mainstream environment for the education, but always going back to the deaf unit for that security and knowing other deaf children, it wasn't until early high school years that I made that connection. When I'm in the mountain school, I'm, I'm one deaf person and then a whole pile of hearing people. But when I was with other deaf, it was like, these people behave like me, they communicate like me. Fortunately, like my parents were able to, I think going, looking back, they just gave me so many language opportunities in so many different places. And through having those opportunities, meant language development happened. So it was going to different places, mixing with different people, being part of different conversations, including me in the conversations as far as possible. I think that was really important as well. So when you were in primary school and you were communicating with the other deaf students, how was the sign language that you used then um, was that similar to New Zealand Sign Language as we have it now? Or how, when did you start learning New Zealand Sign Language? Remember back then, sign language was never, wasn't actually recognised. It was like a monkey language. It was a simple thing with people, for people who were dumb. I think the visual communication that was happening, that, that hasn't changed at all. It wasn't until the late 80s, when they, or early 80s, when they started to think sound English was the way to go. So not sound language, but having sounds on English. So it was a sound for every English word. So being innovative and my parents got involved in everything, we did go and do a total communication class. So that was early high school years for me. And there was a willingness definitely to sound, but I think later when I was at high school, in the late high school years, um, the Wellington Deaf Society, and they still do it with last weekend, every year they have a celebration of the anniversary. And I went to one that was close to my home then. And I remember um, meeting several of the older deaf community then, who I still know now and know well. But they, they were always very welcoming. Yeah, I guess that theme of having, um, or being, accepted by older people and then and you know getting maybe mentored in some kind of way or having support from the older community was something that you would go on to do for other people so how did you originally get involved in teaching and what drove you to do that um how i got involved in education 
I think as a child, I always used to set up my dolls and teddy bears and um, as a classroom and teach them. So I yeah. think becoming a teacher was always what I was going to do <laughs> anyway. But I made a decision at some point not to go straight into this education because I wanted to see what the the real world was like, if you like. So after I trained as a teacher, I worked in Wainui Amata High School for two years and that was brilliant. But I made it very clear to the principal at the start that I could not teach like a teaching teacher. I, I would have a different approach to teaching. And he was absolutely fine. He said, just do what you need to do. He said, if any student make any trouble or fuss about the fact that I'm deaf, to let him know and he would sort it out. But the other thing was that I had a very good pass rate for my subject as well. So even though I taught differently, I was still teaching effectively. Totally. So from there I went up to Auckland um, to do the Teacher of a Deaf course, thinking it was a one-year course, and I'd come back to Wellington, but that didn't quite happen. I ended up working at Custom Deaf Education Centre, and I would say that was probably when the fire in my belly was lit, because I was looking at the students who were deaf like me, and yet the expectations of themselves were so low, and the, there were just so many gaps, and it was like, why aren't we, the collective we, achieving on the same basis as the wider community? Um, and at that time, bilingual education was starting to come in. So we were starting to understand the value of having farm language and spoken or written English in the education setting. I was working with high school students who missed out on that opportunity. They had, most of them had grown up with signed English, which meant that they learned to spell very well and they learned to put things in English grammatical order but had absolutely no idea what the context was or what they were being taught because it didn't make sense. So they learned the rules but they didn't know the content and so on. So I think just seeing that group and just thinking there's no reason that we need to be underachieving, we need to be achieving at the same level. And I think just from there, everything I've done, all the pathways I've taken, all at the, ultimately at the end of the day is about equality and deaf students should be working through education and achieving at the same equity level as everybody else. Totally. Between when you were starting to work um, as a teacher with deaf students and now, um, do you think we've started to make that change within the education system? Where, where are we at now? We definitely have good recognition of the value of sign language in classes now, in education now, which I'm really pleased about. And I think students are also getting a broader range of opportunities than we had in the past. But I think we have a lot of tension at the moment in that we have inclusive education, which means deaf students going to the local home school. But at the same time, you have this big need and right for deaf students to have access to sign language, access to deaf identity and deaf culture. So I don't think we've quite worked out how to get a win-win between an inclusive education philosophy and making sure that each deaf child has access to their language, culture and identity. Yeah. And within other areas of, you know, making 
in New Zealand Sign Language access better for the community? I know you helped to you start NZSL Week. Can you can you talk about that? So, well, early on in the time that I was about to become the CEO for Defadwa for this association at the time, we were talking about Sign Language Week. Originally, there used to be this awareness week, but we needed to move away from that. That was also around the same time that I was doing Masters in Education. And one of the papers that really struck me talked about how if the community, meaning the wider community, understand that deaf people are okay and that sign language is a language like other languages, then if, a deaf if parents have a baby, who's deaf, they are less likely to go through the grieving, oh no, what's wrong with my baby type of thing. If they'd already grown up with a neighbour or had a, an attitude towards sign language that was positive and encouraging. So some of the early ideas that were already starting, we took those and sort of turned it into a bigger event around sign language week, meaning that the idea was that we should have a week that was help to change the attitude towards sign language. So early on, of course, if you use sign, people would really back off and get really nervous and not respond. Or they would stare, or they would, um, ugh, you know, kind of a dumb kind of thing. Um, so I think that sign language week was very quick to help people change their attitude. So now you get people saying, I want to learn sign language, where can I go to learn it? They understand that it's one of the official languages of New Zealand. So I think Sign Language Week has been powerful in keep putting and keeping Sign Language and deaf people on the social and political landscape. And ultimately, if a deaf child arrives in a school and the school knows about Sign Language, then they're more likely to be willing to hopefully find ways for an interpreter to come in the classroom or for the whole school to learn sign language and so on. And the same with if the parents find themselves with a deaf baby, actually embrace it rather than feel horrified by it. Yeah. And to move into another area that you have um, done work around um, with disability pride, um, can you tell me yes. about why that was important to you and how that all started? Yeah, um, Disability Pride is still a very new concept and it came about at a time when quite a few of us who you would possibly call disabled leaders, if you like, were feeling quite restricted and frustrated that things, that the momentum wasn't really moving as we should. And we went through a long process of trying to understand what was really going on. And at the end of it, we realised that we as a community don't have enough pride in ourselves. And when you look at other communities, and there's good literature about this, women achieved their rights when they came together um, and advocated for the right to vote. And they had a lot of men who were allied with them. And it was the same with the gay lesbian community over the homosexual law reform. That community came together and became tight and achieved those changes. And so all those communities have managed to claim the right as such and to embrace it and to make these changes happen. But of course in the disability community, we are a large minority 
but we are quite vulnerable in that we're dependent and yet we don't quite have the same level of voice, if you like, or how our voice is managed or handled is different. So I think it's really important that with Disability Pride we, we take the moment to say, hey, yes, we're disabled, but we're an equal system like everyone else. We're happy to be who we are, we don't need to be converted or changed. And this is how, what we offer to the world, and the world is a better place because we're here. Um, it's about humanity, and uh, it's about creating an environment that embraces it. One time I went to a conference, and through the week of the conference, it was, everything was fine, it was a good conference, and at the end of it, I travelled to the local city. And by going out into a city, and then coming back to where we were staying, which was quite a new part of that place, I realised that the city being old was inaccessible. But coming into the new area where the environment had been built to be accessible, it, there was a feeling of freedom that came with it, a freedom and liberation. I hadn't realised in the week that I'd been staying there, but it was when I left and then back, there was a contrast. And that, that was a big thing. It's about changing the language, I think that in New Zealand, we've still got a long way to go to embrace disability pride. We've got lots of allies, so that's good. But we need to go further and we need to do more around understanding our own rights, actually, and how to articulate our rights into reality. I think we're still governed by some of the language that comes from the medical or charity model. And we need to move, we need to take a leap into the rights-based language. So I think Disability Pride is also about creating the conversations that we need to have to work out how do we communicate about ourselves, how do we communicate about our environment, and how do we communicate where we need to be and, where, and what that looks like. So we need to be more visionary, I think, and a bit more, we need to talk more about what we want the world to be, not just our immediate needs and barriers and supports and those sorts of things. If we're really serious about creating the environment we want to be in. What does that vision, or what does that world look like for you? The vision for me, it means using language and behaviours where equity is really evident. The system, the interpersonal relationships and so on, are much more accommodating and it becomes a much a transparent part of just the way that we live and the way that we do things. Instead of becoming an add-on or something difficult. Thanks. Can you, uh, when, you're, when you're not, you know, doing lots of stuff within the disability community and uh, with the deaf community, can you share something that you like to do as a hobby or when you're feeling like a bit stressed or something like that? I do like to go out and do walking and um, I do enjoy cooking and trying new recipes, never doing the same thing twice and um, things like that. Just, just relaxing at home and just being with people that get me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and having good friends who you can really talk with, openly with and have good laughs with, it's really important as well. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Finally, if you could give your 20-year-old or younger self um, 
any advice. Can you think of a piece of advice that you would give yourself? Be louder. <laughs> <laughs> um, probably that take time, but the outcomes are worth it. And that the outcomes are worth it for such a large number of people that it's worth persevering with. It is a roller coaster, but being clear about and being being true to yourself and being clear about the vision we were going to and aligning with the right people who can help to get there is really important and have lots of fun on the way and just continually learn to keep up with the learning, keep up with the self-reflection. Probably, if anything, just don't be so self-critical. <laughs> In conversation with Rachel Noble. The music is Siva by June. Development and funding thanks to Imagine Better. Edited by Juliana Machado. Visual direction by Benjamin Brooking. Produced by Anya Kelly Costello.